Saturday. It's January 14th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your airmail editors trying to figure out the meaning of life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. Welcome to Saturday, Michael. Welcome to Saturday, Ashley. How was your week? It wasn't as glamorous as yours. I saw you were in Rome. I mean... Like, how many time zones have you been in in the last two weeks? But I was just like, there you were, having Negronis at uh, and the Hotel Eden, and uh, everything looked fantastic. What, what brought you to the Eternal City? Well, Rome is always a good idea, although I think Audrey Hepburn said that about Paris, but whatever. One of my friends had a party, and they invited me. And when I arrived, she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you invited me to a party. This is what happens in Europe, Michael. You can just get on a plane and two hours later, you're in a completely different universe. It's an addictive lifestyle. As I texted you when I saw that you were there, I said, my own personal Anita Ekberg, just so you're always doing, you're always, you're always inspiring me. So that's how I live vicariously through you. I'll take it. I have a great list of new restaurants in Rome for you and our listeners. We should figure out a way to put those up online or something because I ate way too many meals. It turns out, by the way, if you eat carbohydrates for every meal a day for three days, you can gain five pounds in three days. It's heaven. <laughs> well, it's Rome, but you can Back also... Back to you, the treadmill. You can walk it off a lot. You just got to walk around. That's all you got to do. Yeah, I did a little shopping, went to the Villa Borghese Museum. It's pretty pretty addictive. What a great city. And it was fun, too, because we have our little collaboration with Shea Day Day. You know, Andrea Farola did these great scarves for us, so I got to go see those in the store. It was very, you know, Dolce Vita. Wonderful. Well, speaking of Dolce Vita, we have a sweet show for you today, One of our favorite writers, Rich Cohen, will be here to tell us all about the Fitbit murder, specifically how a Connecticut husband was sure he had the perfect alibi to his wife's murder, but was unaware of the silent technological tattletale on her wrist. Then, Ivana Lowell, the daughter of Lady Caroline Blackwell, joins us to discuss her fascinating story in this week's issue, where she takes us inside her beautiful young mother's brief but dramatic marriage to the renowned painter Lucien Freud, which began when they eloped to Paris in 1952. And finally, Rachel Johnson is here to tell us about the recent adventures she encountered when she traveled from New York City to London on the Queen Mary 2. Let's set sail. Ashley, where would you like to begin? First, Michael, I think we should make a promise to our listeners. This is a Harry and Meghan free episode. It is? I'm sorry. I think it should be. I've already wasted too many brain cells this week reading Spare. And I think our listeners have probably read too much about it already. So we promise you this. We are not going to talk about a frostbitten penis on this episode. Oh, no. Well, and if you you are feeling overwhelmed by it in the coverage of... Harry and Meghan, and specifically Harry and Spare, his book, uh, I would direct you all to exercise your right to vote. I hope many of you have seen a recent weekly feature we've added to Airmail, and that is the Attention Whore Index. And in it, we nominate five, six, seven people each week who we feel are doing just a little bit too much to draw attention to themselves. Now, for the last few weeks, Prince Harry and Meghan have been winning the voting each week. But we've got a number of contenders. If you look at this week's issue, everyone from John Bolton to Donald Trump to Kate Beckinsale vying to dethrone him, as it were. Take a look, and I encourage you all to vote for the attention in the Attention Horror Index. It's your one way to exercise your frustrations or your fascinations with who's in the news this week a little bit too much. But Ashley, where would you like to begin today? 
All right, let's talk about murder. Rich Cohen is back with a story uh, that takes us back to a horrible crime that happened in 2015. We are calling it here at Airmail HQ the Fitbit murder, but it's more complicated than that. Rich is an editor-at-large for Airmail. He has written some of our most fascinating crime stories in the past few years, and we are very happy to have him back. Welcome, Rich. Thanks for having me. This is an extremely strange story, so I want you to kick it off for us. What exactly happened? Well, basically, this is going to happen more and more because our devices are tracking us all the time. This guy who killed his wife wasn't very smart about technology, apparently. His wife was wearing a Fitbit, and he gave the police like a timeline. And her Fitbit showed her doing a lot of walking after she was supposed to be dead. And that became a key part of the evidence that opened up the rest of the investigation. It also showed her walking a great distance. It just showed everything he said was untrue. So let's just set the scene. This happened up in your neck of the woods, Connecticut. It seems like there's a disproportionate number of murders that happen up there, but that's another subject. So it's a, it's a man named Richard Debate. He's married. He's got a wife and things start to unravel from there, right? He was married. He had two kids. His marriage wasn't going great. He had an affair with somebody he'd known in junior high school. And he was apparently telling that person he was going to get a divorce and he wasn't. And then the woman got pregnant, the woman he was having the affair with. And now he's like up against it because the news was going to come out one way or the other. And he was worried that his family and all his friends would ostracize him when they found out he'd had this affair. So the best thing, you know, whatever, it's, it's, this is like making a bad problem a lot worse, obviously. So he then killed his wife, tried to make it look like a break-in and an accident. And I think that he thought that way. I don't know what he thought. I mean, the interesting thing is he said there's a lot of this up in Connecticut. And I moved up here now, like from New York and then originally from Chicago, like about 15 years ago. And I thought I was moving into this idyllic kind of paradise, but there's a real blue velvet vibe, man, where underneath the surface, you keep coming across these very dark crimes. And this is one of them. And it, obviously, it's it, not the only one. And to me, these people seem like sociopaths. I've been doing a lot of reading about this. And the thing about sociopaths is part of it is they're, they think they're very, very smart. And they are very smart, but they also think that everybody else is dumber than them. So they continually get caught mostly because they think the police and everybody else is stupid. This guy obviously didn't register what a Fitbit meant to his story. It meant his story was basically provably false. Well, they're able to reconstruct her whole day. She'd gone out in the morning to go to a, uh, to this YMCA gym, to a spin class. And so the Fitbit shows her moving in her house and then a period of not moving where she's sitting in her car and then a period of moving at the gym and then a period of not moving and then at home and then moving all this time after she's supposed to be dead, I think he just assumed he was going to outsmart everybody and his story came apart right away. It reminds me a little bit of, there was a really bad crime up here about I, like 10 years ago with uh, in Cheshire, Connecticut, where two guys went into a house and they killed the people in the house and they set the house on fire. This guy tried to make it look like that crime. And I think he sort of copied it as a story to the police. And it reminded me a little bit of the way Jeffrey McDonald, Joe McGinnis wrote the book. He sort of killed his family and he sort of made it sound like the Manson murders. And that almost worked, actually. You know, some crazy hippies came in and killed his family. And I think that that's the thing where the people think if they 
They think they're smarter than the police. And if they just give them this, then the police will go the other way and not look at them. I mean, the Jeffrey McDonald thing, and he wound up in prison for basically his whole life. That was in a different era before all this technology. And I don't think he'd be able to get away with it now. But the thing that seems to be the same is that people who I would recognize as having no moral compass or do whatever they feel like, which I guess would be kind of a sociopath or psychopath, uh, they tend to just think that they're smarter than everybody else. And, and as a result, they make mistakes. And, you know, of course, statistically, when somebody dies in a domestic situation like this, it's almost always the spouse or particularly the husband. So the guy's got to know that they're going to be looking at him almost immediately. And when they asked him right after his wife died and told the story, did you and your wife have troubles in your marriage? They asked him that while he's still in the house being tended for his wounds, which were self-inflicted to make it look like there'd been a break-in. He said yes and no. And that's never a great answer to the police. They don't love ambiguity like that. So this murder occurs in 2015, right? Seven, eight years ago, right? He's arrested in 2017 finally, but he doesn't come to trial until 2022 because of a number of delays, including COVID. But there's also this, just remember, it's not just the wife he's murdered, but the other victims are he's got two young children. And right. tell us about how he then spends those years while he's waiting to go to trial. Well, he loses custody of his kids right away who end up living with his dead wife's sister and her family. And he kind of lives off the savings, the money that had been set aside for the kids. And at the end, when he goes to prison, I think there's less than $7 left in those accounts that had been set aside. And his wife made a lot of the money in the family. So he lost a large stream of his income. And he attempted right away, right after his wife died, to collect on the life insurance policy he had on her, which was rejected. Again, the insurance companies always kind of know when something, I mean, they're not going to pay if it looks funny. And this looked funny right away. So he kind of lived in his, you know, house and eventually his house was sold. And he tried to, I guess, prepare for his defense. And I think he thought he's probably going to get off. I mean, he thought he was a sympathetic figure and he wasn't. You know, Raymond Chandler had L.A. You seem to have the nutmeg state, Connecticut. What's next? I don't mean to say that I wish for more victims, but it's incredible that just the sort of amount of, I don't know, as I said, Chandler used to have that line, you know, women would look at the, the, the knives in the, in the kitchen drawer and, and uh, when it was hot in L.A. And I just wonder what goes wrong up, up, up there in, in, in Connecticut. I think that there's so much wealth disparity in this state. It's some of the richest areas in the whole country, you know, in parts of Fairfield County and some really struggling areas that sort of were industrial centers that kind of got abandoned. So you have this incredible longing, ambition, people searching for a different kind of life, a perfect kind of life, and it creates sparks everywhere. And, you know, the bad part of it are these crimes. But to me, it, it is fascinating because it is like, I always think at the beginning of Blue Velvet, where it's perfect on the surface, but the ants are eating away at everything under the grass. Needless to say, we could talk about this all day, but we have more columns to write and more stories to uncover, which it sounds like we're going to be hearing a lot more of from you very soon. So that's very good news. Yeah, something. I got to go back and read all those uh, Dashiell Hammett and those Raymond Chandler stories. It is like a reporter as a bit of a detective. That's what I'm starting to feel like, which is always what I really wanted to be. 
private dick. <laughs> private dick combined uh, combined with double indemnity. That's 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 Rich's what Rich's dream. Rich, thanks for being here. Fabulous, Rich. Well, thank you so much for this. Well, Michael, that was one hell of a story. If you're going to kill me, just know that my aura ring will make sure that you are found out. I wouldn't never do anything for my... <laughs> That's so dark. For my personal Anita Ekberg. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Speaking of troubled relationships, we have a wonderful revealing story this week by Ivana Lowell out. And it's tied to this is the centenary of the birth of Lucian Freud. And, and there are a number of exhibits in London, most especially a landmark show currently running at the National Gallery, which, as Ivana notes, has three portraits by Freud of her late mother, Lady Caroline Blackwood. And actually, this is, this is a story that I find riveting. It combines art, it combines love, it combines passion. We're talking about a man with a complicated legacy, Michael, and Ivana Lowell is here to tell us all about her mother's ex-husband, who is one of the most famous artists in modern times, Lucien Freud. The subject of much discussion and fascination, not only because of his show at the National Gallery that is still on right now, um, but also because a lot of his works have come up for auction recently, and he is the talk of the art world as now, as always. Ivana Lowe is a writer based in Connecticut. She has recently written about her time at rehab with Ivana Trump, another famous Ivana, her friend. And she's got quite an incredible life story, and we're very happy to have her here to talk about Lucien Freud. Welcome, Ivana. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Take us back to the very beginning of how she met Freud. So my mother was Caroline Blackwood, Lady Caroline Blackwood. She was the daughter of the Marquis of Dufferin of Arbor and raised in a very sort of aristocratic but somewhat stifling atmosphere. She, Her mother was a Guinness originally, so she, she married a Marquis and got the title, but also gave a lot of cash at the same time, which was helpful, put the roof on the, the stately home, as they say. And so my mother was raised in this sort of very sort of rarefied um, upbringing. She went to a finishing school in Switzerland and just, she was much too bright and she would go to these sort of debutante balls and just look at these sort of chinless men that she was meant to marry and just sort of weep. She said, I'd go into the bathroom and just sort of weep <laughs> at the prospect of marrying any of these people. When she was 18, she went to a party given by Anne Fleming, the widow of Ian Fleming, the James Bond creator. And um, and she spotted this intensely handsome young man across the room and was introduced to him. And Anne Fleming thought it would be a sort of wonderfully sort of fun Jape to introduce Caroline to such a sort of inappropriate man. And the young man was Lucien Freud. He was just getting a divorce from his first wife. He was an unknown artist and German and Jewish, um, which was, uh, so my mother sort of thought, well, this is perfect. I've, you know, he's, he's Jewish, he's married, he's a struggling artist, you know, what could annoy my mother more? And so, but they did, I think they, they really did fall in, they did fall in love. And she eloped with him um, at the age of 19 to Paris, where they lived in this one hotel room, a hotel de Louisiane, which was sort of a hotel of not disrepute, but not not the Ritz. And they lived in, in one room and they subsidized my grandmother at that point just said, I'm cutting you off. If you go off with us, if you go off with him, you cut off your stock off, you'll never be part of the family. And 
my mother just ignored her and went off to Paris. And they lived sort of this very sort of bohemian lifestyle, sort of in cafes and bistros, drinking wine. And it was just a freedom my mother had never known. She just, at first, she thought it was marvellous. And then it sort of became less marvellous. She was his model and would, would sit for him for hours and hours. And as I say in this piece, she said the work is meant to show the agony of the artist, but really it just shows the agony of the sitter because she was, she was, it was so boring. And the first painter was Girl in Bed, which I think is probably the most famous of the paintings he did of her. And she said she was just reading sort of a miserable book and she was had a cold and she just said it was just such an awful experience. But And then they would go out to these cafes at night and Lucien would look at every other girl in the in the restaurant or passing by and just not look at her. And she just said it was just sort of mortifying. But at the same time, he did know amazing people. And the one, he introduced her to Picasso, who took her upstairs to see his doves and ended up painting little figurines on her fingernails, which then Lucien said, you cannot wash your hands for, for weeks and weeks afterwards. I think she had just a fun time and some agonizing time at the same time um, in Paris. For about a year, I think, they lived in Paris. And then they got, went back to London. And then his divorce had finally come through. So they, they got married in a very sort of small ceremony in Soho, which was attended by Cyril Connolly, Francis Bacon, who was Lucien's friend at that point, later became a arch enemy, and they never spoke again. But um, so so they lived in, in Soho and my mother said he was just this, so cruel. She would cook for him and he would turn his nose down everything she cooked. And he just wasn't a nice man, as she liked to say. Ivana, there is so much hagiography hey now around Freud. It seems that he can do no wrong, even though, you know, clearly his legacy is checkered. But Freud scholars and people who know a fair amount about art history and about Freud personally know that he had a checkered legacy. But I think to the public at large, he still is very much revered and an icon both personally and as a painter how do you feel about that how does it affect you personally i think it's extraordinary and i think my mother my, well my mother would, would have been baffled and i think she she recognized he was a genius but at the same time his his behavior was sort of reprehensible it's, it's difficult because i see the paintings of her and i think they're absolutely beautiful and it's and the ones of her are so sort of sensitive and She's young and you see just the vulnerability and just it's just absolutely the soul. I mean, the soul of my mother, it comes out of those paintings. But as this work progressed, they became more, more vicious and almost cruel. And yet some years later, you're at a dinner party seated across from the man. Lo and behold, he invites you to lunch. And I'm wondering if you could just tell the story of what he asks you at that lunch. But he was charming. Um, he had this sort of way of looking at one very quizzically so through. My mother said he had a lazy eye, so one of his eyes wasn't quite right. So he sort of looks sideways and staring and staring. And I just to sort of see whether I, I had any resemblance or whether there was something he could find in me that he, that he had lost. At the end of lunch, he said, I would like to work from you. And I was, of course, completely flattered. I said, oh, Lucy Freud wants to paint me. He wants to paint me. And and at the same time, I said, oh, God, my mother's going to, she's not going to like this. And that also made me kind of, I, said, I can't wait to tell mum. At the same time, as she's going to kill me. 
But um, I, a couple of nights later, I went out and chatted dinner with my mum. We had a couple of drinks, and she. And then I said, "Mum, guess who wants to paint me?" And she just her, her face just froze. She her eyes, these huge eyes, just flashed, furious. Like, you cannot stick for him. He will want to f- you, and he will destroy you. And I said, like, "Oh." But I knew at the same time that she was completely right. I, he has such a bad reputation and he it would have been a disaster. And everything that he wanted to get back at my mother, he would have tried to do with me. Well, it's an incredible story, Ivana. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. It's really extraordinary, not only to read about, you know, the firsthand experience of someone in his life in such a meaningful way, but also it's a good reminder for us that so many of these artists and people in general have very complicated legacies. And it's just as important to explore them as it is to consider the work itself. Yes, exactly. Well, then my mother went on to marry two other artists. She married a painter. I mean, he was a painter. Then she married a composer, and then she married Robert Lowell, the poet. And talk about a difficult legacy. But, I loved, but Robert Lowell was a wonderful, and I I loved him deeply. He was very. He was obviously very flawed. But Lucian was very was deeply flawed, but in a sort of much more sort of, I think sort of nasty, twisted. I think twisted is a very good word to describe him. And, and so she obviously liked difficult men, but then the genius. So it's such a difficult one. It's a genius. Do you judge the art or do you, do you judge the artist? I'm looking at a painting right now. It's just I have a little card, a postcard of one of the paintings where Lucien is looming in the background in the hotel room. And my mother is, is lying, sort of looking very sort of fragile in the bed. It's a, I think it's called Hotel Room in Louisiana, which is one of the famous painting of his. I've got the part. I look at it every day and it's just, you know, sort of look at mom and it's just very, it's very, it's very strange, but it's also wonderful that I can look at that. And I do, I do have those, those paintings to look at as well, which is just, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it just reminds me and I laugh when I look at her. <laughs> Well, Ivana, thank you again so much. Thank you so much. Do you like his work, Michael? Freud? Oh, God, yes. I'd love to see that show. Oh, well, you know, apparently I'm not enough to get you to come to London, but hopefully that show will because it's incredible. Really worth seeing. Speaking of London and getting to London, when I do come to London, I may well come the same way that Rachel Johnson in this week's issue of Airmail recently traveled from New York to London on the Queen Mary 2. This is a great story. Now, once again, Michael, if this can't get you to London, I don't know what will. Those of us who brave the transatlantic crossing on a regular basis know that it often comes with jet lag and perhaps a side of COVID. Rachel has found a better way. It turns out, if you have a few days to spare, taking the Queen Mary 2 is the more efficient, glamorous, and luxurious way to do it. Uh, She's here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Rachel Johnson, an editor-at-large for Airmail, the author of many books, and also the host of a great podcast in its own right called Difficult Women. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for taking the Queen Mary 2 so we don't have to. No, no, no. You definitely want to. I've done it twice. It's a once in a lifetime trip. You go back and forth from London to New York fairly often. Why did you decide to allocate seven days to that particular journey? Well, you know, we're in the the new world of slow radio and slow food and slow shopping or not shopping, you know, and trying to do things slow in a slower, more meaningful way. Therefore, why take seven hours crossing the pond when you can take seven days? To me, it made perfect sense. Plus, I should admit to ML subscribers, 
and found that I was actually paid to do this crossing because I was working. So this was a working trip. But this is the second time I've crossed the Atlantic on the Queen Mary too, like this in style. And I did it a second time, not because I was being paid. And frankly, you know, the fee wasn't the point, but because it's just, I think, an incredible experience to be on the high seas, to be on the Atlantic for seven days. It's just, it's quite a zen. I mean, despite the amount of food and drink that you consume in the course of the crossing, it's quite a contemplative way of getting from New York, Brooklyn Pier to Southampton. And there's just nothing like leaving New York um, at dusk when you see the lights, you know, twinkling on the skyline and then you, the, the tugs are accompanying you. And I didn't know this, but do you know what drop the pilot means? That's a, that's an expression from this kind of liner. So it requires a particular sort of pilot to get this liner, this enormous ship out of Brooklyn, away from New York, under the Verrazzano Bridge, and then, you know, out into safer waters, and you have two tugs on either side. And then when that bit's over, they drop the pilot, the pilot leaves the liner, and another pilot takes over, who's going to get you all the way to Southampton. Did you know that? They literally get this guy off a moving hulk onto a tug, and then he goes back and does something else. I thought that that blew my mind, basically. How was the food? This is a very important question. Food is pretty good, especially in terms of how many times a day you get it. So you have breakfast, you can have your breakfast in your cabin, which is divine because, you know, it's honestly the most comfortable bed I've ever slept in. And I wanted to take the mattress home. Then I discovered that you could. They do a roaring trade at the Cunard in these mattresses. So the food is pretty good. I've never been on one, but my, my I got, got all my images come from like 1940s movies or something. <laughs> do you then spend languorous afternoons under a blanket with your sunglasses on, on a deck chair, staring out at the water or playing shuffleboard? Or what are you doing there then? Yes. There's a very kind of poignant moment in your story where you talk about making the crossing and what happens each time that the ship travels over the site of the Titanic. That's true. I mean, when I did it the first time, I did hear the bell. They toll a bell when the Queen Mary, or I think any ship, goes over the graveyard of RMS Titanic, which obviously sank on its maiden voyage. And this time round, I have to admit, I didn't hear it. And I asked the captain, I said, did you toll the bell when we went over the site, the, the, the grave of the Titanic? And he looked at me and he said, it was three in the morning. And I didn't think that 2000 passengers would, you know, would thank me for waking them up <laughs> to remind them that this was the place where this great ship went down. This is a, a moment on board where you feel that you're part of maritime history and you're doing something of a traditional thing that people who've been have been doing for the last 120 years. And people take that bit really seriously. It's a little more romantic than please put your tray table up, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. And um, I think we, yeah, and I, I do thoroughly recommend it. I mean, the, the point about the noon, noon bulletin is, and this is my last point about this. You obviously have a time change if you fly to New York. There's a five-hour time difference, okay? So if I'd flown New York to London 
I would have been jet lagged. If you cross the Atlantic taking seven days, every other day, the captain puts the ship's clock forward an hour. So when you disembark at Southampton, in theory, you have adjusted acclimatized to London time. Thank you so much, Rachel. Can't wait for the next. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay, Michael, I think I have to give this a try. She has truly convinced me. Yeah, no, as I say, it's my, I've always wanted to do it. I've just never had the time. I was also surprised you can do it this time of year in winter, but I think it'd be, what would be more romantic? And then when Brooke and I come to London, you can come meet us at Southampton and just, you know, we get in the car and go motor straight on into London and go right to a proper lunch. How would, how romantic and dramatic would that be? It sounds like heaven. As soon as I learn to drive, I'm on it. Consider it done. You don't know how to drive? I know how to drive, but I don't know how to drive here. It's very confusing. I'm not, you know, I have a poor sense of spatial awareness. It's not great. And then the fact that the roads are different, the signs are different, the roads are narrow. It's a whole process. So thanks to Reggie, my driving instructor, I'm finally getting there slowly but surely, but it has been a Hmm. process. Okay. I'll be ready for you, baby. When you come, I'm ready. Yeah. Just have Jenkins, your driver, come and, you know, with with the Bentley and and we'll all be fine. (laughs) Jenkins, where are you when we need you? Okay, Michael, tis the weekend. Before we go off into that good night, do you have anything at all to recommend? I do. If you find yourself in Paris in the next couple of weeks, this is your last chance to see a brilliant retrospective at the Louvre on the designer who was probably Coco Chanel's greatest creative rival, Elsa Scaparelli. Brooke and I saw this show while we were there, and I have to say, it transcends the idea of what a show about a designer often is. Not only do you have her work on display, but you get to see her collaborations with such artistic titans of the 20th century as Giacometti, Cocteau, Dali, and many others. Plus, the curators have included the work of Daniel Roseberry, the current head of the house, so you get to see the dresses he has designed for people such as Lady Gaga, Beyonce, and many others. It's a masterpiece of a show, and it is closing on January 22nd, so be sure and try to see it. Now, if you want to know more of what's happening in the arts, no matter where you are in the world, be sure to check out Airmail's comprehensive but highly selective arts intel report. And you, Ashley? Oh, Michael, well, you know, unfortunately, I spent most of this week reading Spare. No, that's completely a lie. I skimmed it over two hours on an airplane. But I am about to recommend a show that was inspired by a video game. Actually, it was based on a video game. One I have never played since the last video game I played was Duck Hunt back in 1991. But here we are. It is called The Last of Us. And it was originally a PlayStation 3 operation. It came out in 2013. Some people say it's the best video game ever made. I could not be the judge of that. But it's a pretty great television show that's now playing on HBO. Uh, In the game, you play a guy named Joel who is traversing a post-apocalyptic America. And in the television show, uh, he has a companion with him named Ellie. And those two characters are played by Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey, and they're extraordinary. Uh, the first few have been released already. I highly recommend it. I think it's uh, it's high stakes, high drama, and high style, and it's completely engrossing in a way that I imagine video games must be. Uh, again, it's a fantastic show. It's called The Last of Us on HBO. Thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Bon voyage. Anchors away. Morning Meeting is produced by 
Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.